1: It's science, but not as you know it.
2: The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with Kat Arnie. Hi, Kat. Hello. And with Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Hello. It's great to have the pair of you back been it's off on your summer be, travels and things. Yeah, great absolutely. to have you here. We're well, coming up on this week's Naked Scientists. how scientists have found out that what a woman eats can affect the flavour of her breast milk, and that can give babies a taste for all kinds of new foods, apparently. Also, how scientists have found a way to make your cargo 10% further on the same amount of fuel, which will come in very handy at the moment with oil prices as they are. And also, how researchers have fathomed out the origins of singing in the bath, and it's all down to a species of humming fish. And we'll be hearing all about that in just a minute. Cut.
3: Thanks, Chris. Also this week, it's our science question and answer extravaganza. We'll be taking a look at all your scientific, medical, chemical conundrums, so hit us with them. You can get phoning in and emailing in. We'll be finding out how glow-in-the-dark materials work, what makes your tummy rumble, and why snakes don't get poisoned by their own venom.
4: Fantastic. So the answers to all those questions and lots, lots more are on their way. And also, later in the show, we'll be delving into the ultimate in recycling with this week's question of the week.
5: My name is Skye. I'm an archaeologist in Arkansas and America. And I was taught when I was young that we drink the same water today that the dinosaurs drank when they were alive. And I wondered if that was true.
4: So, how much of the world's water has been drunk before? Either by us or by dinosaurs, the answer's on the way. Plus, in kitchen science this week, Ben and Dave have got an exciting experiment for you to try in the car. All you'll need is a car, a helium balloon, and preferably somewhere you can drive nice and safely without causing an accident, like a car park.
2: So the M25 should be all right then, Helen?
4: Oh, uh, well, around this time, I think so, <laughs> yes.
2: Thank you very much. So if you'd like to get in touch with us with any questions, you have some feedback, or if you just want to say hi to us, the email address is chris at scientist.com The Naked Science. Podcast
1: powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at UKfast.net.
2: It's The Naked Scientists with Chris Canton and Helen. And this week, scientists have found a way of making your car go, we think, about 10% further. This is Joseph Herrimans and his colleagues. They're from Ohio State University. And the way they've done this is by working on a principle called the thermoelectric effect. Now, this is a principle that's been known for some time. Basically, if you take a certain chemical and heat it up, when you apply heat to it, it generates electricity for you. And this same technique is used to power space probes that are going off into dim and distant parts of the solar system where you can't rely on solar energy energy. So you send something like a radioactive isotope with the chemical and this generates a small amount of energy to keep the probe powered. Thing is, it's not terribly useful for cars. And as Joseph Herrimans points out, cars are effectively terrible wastes of energy. Roughly 25% of the energy coming from burning fuel actually ends up in the wheels and 75% of it largely ends up as heat. Most of it zipping out of the exhaust pipe. So how do you solve the problem? Well, what they've done is to take a chemical called lead telluride which is a semiconductor, and they've added a small amount of thallium. So roughly one atom in every 50 in this compound is thallium. And what this does is when you put this up close to the engine, say near the manifold where the exhaust fumes are about 300 degrees or so, the hot surface boils off or produces free electrons, which can then be sent round a circuit and then returned to the cooler side of the semiconductor to complete the circuit. And so the way they propose that this could be used is in some kind of hybrid car, like a Prius or something, where you would... Collect up to ten per cent of the spare heat from the exhaust. Generate electricity for it from it. Put this into a battery and then the battery could be used to start the car moving once you've come to a stop or something because that's the time when you tend to waste enormous amounts of fuel. And it was the breakthrough of putting the thallium into the recipe that made all the difference because this makes extra electrons available so that the when you heat the material, it can then produce all these extra electrons to make a much more efficient energy generator than people have managed to do before. So as they say, they think they can get about 10% of the energy from the exhaust that would previously just be going... Up the, up the exhaust and into the atmosphere.
4: Do we have any idea where this thallium's going to come from? Is that something that we've got lots of kicking around? Well,
2: it's toxic, but it's a metal that we can obtain, and it's available, so this stuff is, is fairly easy to source. And so unlike previous attempts to do this, which involved some clever nano-engineering, where you had to try and build structures very, very carefully to limit the flow of heat through the chemical, because the reason it works so well for thermoelectricity is because it doesn't conduct heat very well, and so people were engineering certain configurations of structures to stop the heat flowing through it, With this structure, it's very easy to make. It doesn't worry so much about the heat flowing through it. It's more that it's very efficient at capturing the heat and then turning that into free electrons by using this clever recipe. Paper in Science this week.
4: Sounds excellent. So, now, if you like to warble in the shower or in the bath, then you probably don't realise that you're actually taking a very close step back to the origins of where your singing talent came from in the first place, and that's namely fish. This is according to a team of neuroscientists from Cornell University in the States, led by Andrew Bass, and they've discovered that... Andrew Bass! Oh, cat! I thought I'd get away with that. (laughs) Andrew Bass, the fish researcher. Hey, my name's Helen Scales, and I'm a marine biologist, so what can you say anyway... (laughs) This Andrew Bass, uh, Professor Bass, um, has discovered that uh, vertebrate brains may have been wired up for making sounds for an awfully long time, in fact for hundreds of millions of years, um, since the time before vertebrates hauled themselves out onto dry land. Now the team studied the brain development of a lovely type of fish that lives uh, along the seabed in the Pacific coast of North America and it's called the midshipman, or I think rather wonderfully, the humming toadfish, which is nice. And the reason they're called that is because the male humming toadfish spend long hours lovingly humming away, serenading the females, trying to persuade them to lay their eggs where they look after them in nests so what they did was they basically injected um, fluorescent dyes into the growing brain cells of these um, toadfish larvae, the young babies of these these, um, fish and watched them under microscopes as clusters of cells formed connections and started growing into the neural networks that control the fish's vocalisation and by looking at the equivalent parts of the brain um, the team discovered remarkable similarity in in the neural circuits controlled similar sound making in amphibians in birds and also in mammals including in primates which really bolsters the idea which was actually first put forward by charles darwin himself a long time ago he had this thought but couldn't prove it at all but that really the ability to make and control sounds evolved a very very long time ago um, in vertebrates. you know when they were still swimming around in the sea
2: I remember you talking on this show uh, about five years ago, Helen, four years ago, about herrings communicating by blowing bubbles out of their cloaca. Yes, that's right. And fast repetitive ticks, also known as farts. That's right. And they use this as a means of communication. So it's it's obviously got a number of ways they have of communicating. Different ways
3: of communicating, but it's that idea of being able to make sounds. I think I know some men that communicate in that way anyway. Um, Completely different story, not related to fish or engines. Uh, In the news this week, one of the biggest cancer stories this week has been about abiraterone, and it's a new drug that's been currently tested for prostate cancer. Now earlier this week there was loads of media interest and in my role as a spokesperson for Cancer Research UK I got to go on telly and it was all very exciting um, because researchers had released the results of an early stage clinical trial of this drug in men with aggressive prostate cancer whose cancers come back after standard hormone treatment. So obviously uh, they've been treated with hormone therapy, their cancer starts to come back and this is when really things get very difficult and it's very hard to treat them then. Now, the trial showed that the drug worked in up to 80% of the patients that they tested, which is really, really great. This, so that's why it got loads and loads of interest. And some stories were saying, oh, well, this drug could save 10,000 lives a year, and that's the number of men who actually die from prostate cancer in the UK every year. Now, it is very exciting, but this trial only involved 21 men. It's a very early stage trial and, you know, it's certainly not really enough to warrant this huge excitement and also certainly not enough numbers in a trial to warrant it being used all over the place. And people are are phoning up organisations like Cancer Research UK and saying, how can I get this drug? And it's very important to remember that, it's still essentially an experimental treatment. Now, it is being tested, this drug abiraterone, is now being tested in a much larger group of patients across the world, uh, more than a 1,000 prostate cancer patients. And when we get the results of that trial then we'll know much more about whether this drug's safe. So at the moment, it's a bit too early to get overexcited because we don't really know how well it works and how safe it is.
2: How does it work?
3: Well, it's actually, it's really interesting the way it works. So most hormone treatments for, for test, uh, prostate cancer work on cutting off the supply of testosterone. That's the male sex hormone that fuels the growth of prostate cancer cells. And they cut off the, the production of testosterone by the testes, the testicles, um, in in several ways. But the thing about abiraterone is that it actually stops the production of testosterone in all the tissues of the body. So that's uh, in other hormone-based tissues, uh, for example, the adrenal glands and in the prostate cancer itself, it completely shuts down production of testosterone. So if you have cancers that have, you know, they're, they're managing to struggle by on a little bit of testosterone and start growing again, this really shuts off all the fuel to the cancer so it is potentially very exciting drug um, you know Cancer Research UK is very excited about it because we were involved in the early development of it so it is it's got a lot of potential but it's certainly too early to get excited and it's certainly too early for it to be prescribed generally.
2: More than 20,000 men a year in the UK alone die from prostate cancer uh, so it's very serious yeah, it's numbers. Yes about
3: 10,000 die and, and 33,000 get it so it's you know we really need to to do something about it but it's certainly too early to say yet. Yeah.
2: Thank you, Cap. Well, to the other end of the body, and that's breasts and breastfeeding. And there's a very interesting paper which has been published in the Journal of Physiology and Behavior this week by researchers at the University of Copenhagen. This is Helen Hausner and her colleagues, and they were interested in the question: Do babies get influenced in their tastes by what they get from their mother's breast milk? In other words, does what mum eats affect? the baby's choice of foods later because there are various anecdotal reports and small studies that have shown that mothers who eat certain things when they're pregnant and breastfeeding subsequently have babies that develop a taste or a preponderance to wanting to eat that substance. They did it with carrots, for example, and showed that babies develop a taste for carrots if mum eats a lot of carrots. But it was never clear whether it's because the flavour of the carrots is going into the breast milk or whether it's just that mum in general smells on her breath of something from the carrots, uh, perhaps her her own natural body secretions smell of carrots in some way and this makes the baby develop a taste for carrots not the breast milk so to test this out they got 18 women who were breastfeeding they took baseline milk samples from them and then they selected four chemicals which they fed to them in capsules just before a lunch and the women took either a menthol capsule uh, some carvone and that's caraway it's the thing that makes caraway seeds smell the way they do also 3 butyl acetate which is the banana smell in bananas and also something called trans-anethol, which is the licorice smell or licorice taste that you get in fennel star anise and licorice itself so they fed capsules of this one at a time to this group of women and then at two, four, six, and 8 hours after they took the capsules they took breast milk samples and they measured something called the head space. This is the airspace above the sample for any of these volatile chemicals. They used an e-nose, an electronic measure of what chemicals might be there. And the menthol went up over four to six hours. It peaked four to six hours after the women eat et to the menthol. The other ones, the caraway and the licorice, came up after just two hours, and you could detect this in the breast milk to a significant amount. Um, but they never got any of the banana flavours, which they think probably just doesn't get filtered into the breast milk. But what this shows is a number of important things. One of them is that a lot of the chemicals that, that mothers do eat do get into the breast milk, and probably at a level that may well influence the tastes of the babies. And the other interesting thing is that preliminary data from the same group shows that... Uh, when, women, when you compare women who bottle feed their babies with women who breastfeed their babies the breastfed babies tend to be more willing or more receptive to the introduction of new tastes and flavours later than the bottle fed ones which seem to be programmed to prefer blandness so uh, this explains a lot about um, how you can influence the choices and tastes of your future baby by what you yourself eat so that's quite interesting isn't it
3: i love babies i could never eat a whole one though
4: Kat, from human babies, I'm going to go back to the sea, to dolphin babies. Yes, I'm sorry, I can't stay away. Um, but uh, And I'm also going to stick somewhat to underwater singers from my story earlier um, with a couple of stories. But first of all, bottlenose dolphins and um, how the fact that mother dolphins may sing lullabies to their babies um, in the first few weeks of life. And what they're doing is, in fact, imprinting themselves on their babies so that they know that that's their mother. And it's apparently could be particularly important for bottlenose dolphins living in large pods uh, where babies might get um, go missing and also there is a preponderance and a, a susceptibility for other mothers to try and nick the babies uh, or other females to nick the babies of mothers and sort of dash off with them um, but it seems, uh, according to researchers from Dallas Zoo who've been watching captive female bottlenoses and, and listening to the sounds that they make and hearing that there are these unique songs that the, their mother dolphins sing over and over and over again and kind of blast at their babies for the first few weeks could be doing this imprinting thing which happens in lots of different animals, you know, uh, um, baby chicks will imprint on a human if they, they see a human when they've, they've hatched and they think and that's its mother and will trail hopelessly around after them. But this could have quite an important role in dolphins. which The I dolphins think got, got good vision,
2: friends. haven't they? So why do they need the sound as well? Because
4: Maybe the young haven't developed their vision yet to, to an extent to be able to recognise their mothers. I mean, we really are talking the first few days and weeks of life um, for these little creatures. And sound for them is very important. We know they use it for hunting and so on and, and for communicating. And then just one other no- nice story. It seems that the news this week was full of underwater noises um, which is um, about another group of uh, cetaceans, those marine mammals um, and this is the humpback whales which um, we know very well from their beautiful songs um, if you've ever heard... Cat
2: does a good impression of a going, humpback whale. Oii. And if right. you want to buy her new album, it comes out in October. <laughs> I can
4: promise this, she sounds much better on the harp. Anyway, <laughs> um, I've heard I'm Back Singing Underwater and it's just magical. really is when I'm diving in Australia. Wonderful. Um, but it's not just that these songs that we've, we've really learnt about that we know um, hold meaning, but other noises that these creatures make as well. In fact, they make, splashes and bubbles and grunts and possibly even farts. Um, And this team of researchers from the University of Queensland have recently, well, they've spent the last five years, actually, following humpback whales from the Great Barrier Reef all the way down to the Antarctic and watching and listening to them and seeing that they make these other noises and do particular um, behaviours at the same time, which should, could be that they you know, represent certain you know, meanings and uh, they're communicating with each other. So, for example, a leaping in the air and splashing back down, known as breaching, happens most when there's an adult on its own in a group of youngsters. So it could mean, here I am, don't worry, I'm here. You know, so that's so quite nice. So that's in that the local nice.
2: swimming pool as well,
4: well but perhaps. not amongst whales. Yeah. So yes. I think it's rather nice that we've got another idea of this complexity of how they communicate, these wonderful creatures swimming around in the actions.
3: Now, slightly different tack. Um, Snuffles and sneezes are particularly common. But if you happen to be a smoker, you're actually more likely to suffer from colds and flu and have more serious effects from them. For example, if you're a smoker, you're actually more likely to die during a flu epidemic than people who are non-smokers. And if you have children who are exposed to secondhand smokes, smoke, passive smoke, they're more likely to have more severe responses to colds as well. But until now, it wasn't really known why this happened. And some scientists thought that the in cigarette smoke, actually dampen down your immune responses so you don't respond properly to infection. Now, scientists at Yale School of Medicine in the States have finally answered the question and found that the opposite is true. And what they did is they um, found that the immune systems of mice that were exposed to cigarette smoke for as little as two cigarettes a day for two weeks hugely overacted. Their immune systems really went crazy when they were exposed to flu virus. Um, they managed to get rid of the viruses normally but then this huge inflammation caused tissue damage and scarring in their lungs. Now these findings suggest that smokers have problems not because they can't get rid of the virus but because they just hugely overact to it and the lead author on the study said it's like the, using the equivalent of a sledgehammer rather than a fly swatter to get rid of a fly and they've also studied the molecular pathways that lead to this response so maybe this could be some good targets for drugs in the future to help treat chronic lung problems and, uh, and to help treat some of the problems that that do beset smokers. Though, of course, the best way to protect yourself is to give up.
2: Thank you, Kat. Uh, Helen, just to mention here we, we heard from uh, Mark in Bletchley who said he's never taken a bath with a fish but is open to offers in relation to what you're saying and, and Rolly in Second Life says uh, he's waiting for follow-up on your study by Dr Bass with bated breath there you go, now if you've ever tried to use r- voice recognition software you probably know how frustrating it is, this is the kind of software where you talk into it and then it translates what you're saying into words on the screen to save you actually physically having to type them and it can get frustrating when it continuously gets things wrong, well improved voice recognition software usually just means a bigger library of sounds to compare your voice against. But scientists at the University of Sheffield are trying to take a different approach to tackling the problem. And they've done it by building an artificial tongue and jaw, which mimics the movements that we make during speech, so that we can understand a bit more about how speech gets made. And to find out a bit more, we've invited Professor Roger Moore from the University of Sheffield to join us. Hello, Roger. Hello, Chris.
6: Hi, Thanks for you? joining
2: us on The Naked Scientist. Very well, thank you. Tell us a bit about your study.
6: Uh, yeah, well, this is um, actually the research of one of my PhD students called Robin Hoff, um, and he's uh, essentially, as you say, put together a, an animatronic tongue and vocal tract, which we call Anton. Um, it's just beginning to uh, move right now, so it's uh, a very early stage of development. But uh, what we're going to be doing with this is studying the speech production mechanism um, in animatronic form. Um, and we'll be able to, what this means is we'll be able to access data about how speech is produced, which is very, very difficult to get. From the, um, directly from the human system.
2: So just describe the system a bit for us. What does this tongue look like?
6: Yeah, well, it actually does look like a tongue, you'll be really <laughs> relieved to hear. Um, it's made from um, a sort of silicon gel uh, with a sort of latex uh, cover. It's, it's been moulded on, on a, um, a medical model. Um, it's been bedded in a plastic skull. The, the skull is also um, derived from a real skull. Um, and we're right now filling in the re- remainder of the vocal tract um, in order to complete the cavity, uh, which will surround the tongue. Um, and then the most important part of all this is that, of course, it has to move. And so we are connecting motors through uh, filaments into the tongue itself to pull the equivalent of the the different muscle groups. So you
2: can actually accurately model the muscles that are natively in the tongue in order to faithfully reproduce the movements the tongue would make when saying different words?
6: This is the idea, yes. We're trying to be as anatomically correct as we possibly can because this is important to the research. Uh, One of the key things that we need to uh, find out, um, which is very difficult to do in any other way, is to measure the energy that is used to move the tongue into different positions.
2: And how will you do that with this model?
6: Uh, Well, it turns out that because it's um, a physical model, uh, all we have to do, in fact, is is measure the energy being used by each of the different motors, which is pulling on uh, the uh, um, respective muscle groups. So we we will therefore have a very easy way of assessing the different um, energy uh, uses across the whole of the model.
2: And how do you know which movements to make the tongue make in order to say different things?
6: Well, initially we're uh, using some MRI scans from um, our colleagues in Grenoble and using that to establish sort of static positions that we will um, set up as targets. So in uh, other words, what people do with
2: their tongue when they're saying something?
6: Yes, that's right. I mean, first of all, we have to work with static sounds, you know, simple vowel sounds, um, and then we'll move on to dynamic sounds um, as the complexity of the model progresses. It would be possible to use machine learning techniques to allow the a device because it's all controlled by a computer, of course, to learn the relationship between the sound output and the control structures in order to then create the sounds that it wants by moving the tongue into the appropriate positions and using feedback, auditory feedback, on the sounds that's produced. That's and
2: will it actually speak to us, Roger? Is it possible to make it speak rather than just make movement?
6: Eventually it will <laughs> we'll speak. Right, right now it's, um, it's moving, um, but uh, it doesn't actually make a sound at all uh, just at the moment. Um, it will be vocalizing, we estimate, in a couple of months when we've completed the rest of the vocal tract. Um, and uh, it would be possible to control it through a whole range of uh, sequence of movements which would you know, correspond to it saying something.
2: And the ultimate end point of doing this is exactly what?
6: Well, as I say, we really need to understand something about what's called the energetics of speech, because um, this is implicated in a lot of the so-called random variation that um, uh, a lot of our uh, automatic speech recognition devices experience right now. In fact, although speech is highly variable, it's not random at all. Uh, People are compensating typically for Um, all kinds of situations that they find themselves in and they change their voices so for example the way that i'm speaking to you right now is very different to the way i would speak to my family and if we all know that if you're in the pub you're you know virtually shouting at your friends in order to be heard above the noise level those kinds of changes in the voice are well known but not well modeled and that's what we're trying to get a handle on
2: thank you roger if people want to find out a bit more about your work where should they look
6: uh, yeah, if they go to the Department of Computer Science uh, website at Sheffield University, they will find both myself and uh, Robin Hoff. Um, and uh, Robin, in fact, has set up a, 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 subs, uh, a site which has some videos there. Um, there was an article in New Scientist this week, um, which also points to that.
2: Thank you, Roger. And, and uh, does your secretary is she called Money Penny?
6: <laughs> yes, good one <laughs>
2: Thanks for joining It's good to have you on the show right, yeah. That's Professor Roger Moore, he is from the University of Sheffield and he's explaining to us there how Anton, that's animatronic tongue that he's built with his PhD student Robin Hoff uh, is actually going to help us to build better in the future voice recognition software
1: Stripping down science
7: Okay, let's do it
1: The Naked
2: Scientists This is the Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, Katani, and with Helen Skells.
3: Don't forget that we do beam this program live into Second Life, and that's from six pm UK time. That's ten am Second Life time. And there's a great group of avatars out there who discuss the science in the show. So if you'd like to join them, do visit the Scilands and then search for the Naked Scientists. You can drop by our palatial mansion, relax on one of the sun loungers, and listen to the show. And I'd like to say hello to all Second Life people listening to us out yeah, there. Yeah,
2: we're watching you. Tony Blair would approve, CCTV <laughs> style. Uh, now if you are online of course we have a big favor to ask you which is we're running a bit of a survey on the naked scientist to find out what you think of it and what you think we could do better and what you think we're already doing quite well and it would help us enormously if you could fill that in and a very big thank you to the people who already have we're really grateful for your feedback to do that you go to nakedscientist.com forward slash survey and there are just some simple boxes you have to tick or a couple of boxes where you can write something if you want to and it should take no more than five minutes of your time so if you could help us we'd be really grateful thanks
4: now ben and dave are about to hit the road for this week's kitchen science in dave's car now this is the ideal experiment for you to do if you happen to find yourself on the way to a party with a helium balloon because all you need is a car and a helium balloon
8: for this week's kitchen science i'm not in fact in the kitchen i'm actually in dave ansell's car i haven't stolen it i am actually here with dave hi dave hi ben and we've come to a fairly deserted park and ride in cambridge now Obviously, should you ever wish to do any science experiments in your car, it would be wise to do it somewhere where you're not going to run into anything or hurt anyone. Wouldn't you agree, Dave? Yeah, if you
9: get distracted by the science, you don't want to hit anything expensive.
8: Now, I can see that Dave has
9: a bright purple helium-filled balloon with you. Are you going to a party? Not immediately, I'm afraid, no. It's a really quite nice effect you can get with a helium balloon in a car. So, what do we plan to do then, Dave? Dave? Well, if you're ever in a car with a helium balloon, this is something you can look out for. Basically, what we're going to do is we're going to have the helium balloon tied onto a piece of string, floating away gently. Then we're going to accelerate the car and then brake it and see what happens to the helium balloon.
8: So it's really as simple as getting a helium-filled balloon inside the passenger compartment of your car, perhaps tied to the handbrake or something like that, accelerate a bit and then
9: brake. And
8: that's supposed to show us something special?
9: That's the idea, yeah. If anyone has any idea what it might be, give us a call.
8: Okay, well, do let us know if you think what unusual thing you might see with a helium balloon in a car as it accelerates and then brakes. But we will come back to you later on in the show.
4: Right, well, obviously, your safety comes first, dear listeners out there, so please only do this if you can drive a car and not distract the driver at the same time. But next time you find yourself in a car with a helium balloon, or go out and buy one specially, hold the string with the balloon inside the car so it's floating freely in the passenger compartment, not in front of the driver, please, and watch what happens when you accelerate, brake and even go round corners. Ben and Dave will be back a bit later on to let us know what happens for them. But if you think you know what might happen or if you have any questions, or comments at all, then do get in touch. The email address is chris at
2: have you ever tried it, Helen, driving around with a helium balloon in your car?
4: Um, no. It's, it's really
2: good. It's really good. It's a very, oh, really? very. It's really interesting and totally, totally blows you away. This, I've never be even surprised. thought of it, but I will definitely try be
3: trying hopefully, next time. Hopefully
2: some people out there will give it a go.
3: It does sound absolutely brilliant. Anyway, we've had a, a quick email in here from Christopher Bianco. I hope he's filled in our survey because he says hello to the whole gang. He's sending this email to say, keep it up, very interesting programme. And he's finally listening to us live, uh, no longer from his mobile phone podcast. He's out there in Malta. So, hi Chris and... Go fill in our survey on the website. You also
2: heard from Kevin Kazmierski, who says he's a 44-year-old carpenter from New Jersey, and he's actually building a lab at Rutgers University in Newark, and he likes listening to our podcast as he's working. And he tells me I have to be nicer to you, Helen. I wasn't aware I was being nasty. He tells me I have to pay you more as well.
4: Oh, that does sound good. Yes, thank you. More of letters like that, please. <laughs> Say it more. Petition, perhaps.
2: Also, thank you to Ian Tate, who says hello from Laos. Uh, he's, he's listening there and, and says he, he likes the kitchen science experiments as well. That's so thank cool. you very much for that. Now, Kat, I've got a question here from okay. Biran Desai, who says to you, if I have B-positive blood and so does my wife, how can our son have O-positive blood?
3: Well, you'd be asking the milkmen what sort of blood group they have. No, no, no. This is all very simply explained because you need to realise that blood group is determined by a set of genes and you get one gene each from your mum and one from your dad. And blood group's determined by basically two different genes called A or B and you have certain versions of these and you can also get a version called O which is kind of... these, These genes make proteins that are on the surface of your blood cells. So if you have a gene that makes is A, you make A proteins, and they go on the surface of your blood cells. If you have a gene for B, that makes B proteins, and they go on the surface of your blood cells. And if you have O, then you don't make any proteins. So, going back to what I said about you have one gene from your mum, one gene from your dad. If you had one B gene and one O gene, your blood group would be B, because you've still got a gene that's making B proteins. So your blood cells are B. Um, If you then were with someone else who had one B and one O, and you had a baby with them... Uh, Have (laughs) BO. You would have BO. Your babies could either have BB genes, so their blood group would definitely be B. They could be BO, because they've got one B gene from from maybe you and and an O gene from mum or dad. Or they could actually have the two O's, in which case they would be blood group O. So it's perfectly possible to have... Uh, two B parents having an, an O child, which you can actually then infer that both of you must be B O.
2: Hence, that's because group O is recessive. Exactly, so group
3: it. O is recessive because you have no proteins on the surface of your blood cells from this group. So, if you have even just one A or B gene, that you're that gonna, determines your blood a- type.
2: I've uh, got, a, got a question here for you, Helen. This is from Sandy Fosnot, who says, why are yawns so contagious, even from a TV? Uh, he says a graphic designer in Dayton, Ohio, listens while he's at work, and uh, finds yawns impossible to resist whilst watching them even on television.
4: Well, yes, I think you share a trait with about f- between 40 and 60% of people who find yawns very catchable. But unfortunately, um, the answer is we don't know. We actually don't really know why it is that um, yawns are so contagious. I think we're not even quite sure why we yawn anyway. There's lots of ideas as to what that is, um, but we're not alone in our in our catching of yawns. Chimpanzees do it as well, um, and it's an unconscious process. So we really don't know what it is. We've got ideas of why we might do it. Um, it could be early on in human evolution that we needed to communicate how sleepy we were because it was important for groups of people to go to sleep at the same time and wake up at the same time, things like that. And so by yawning, it kind of synchronised group behaviour and that sort of thing. So that could be a reason why people have actually looked at what's going on inside our brains when we are catching yawns, um, you know, by putting putting people inside of... Um, functioning magnetic resonance machines and you know looking at patterns of, of electricity inside your brains when you're watching other people yawn um and really again it hasn't really opened up much of an answer to what's going on we get a lowering in the activity in a particular part of the brain called the periamygdala region which is very de- deactivated very strongly if you have a person who really really wants to yawn because apparently the desire to yawn varies between different people so we're really left with a bit of a bit of a question mark on that one still although i did rather love um some experiments i found um a report of which was at a zoo and they wanted to see if this was (laughs) cross-species. So they went round with people looking at animals yawning to see if it made us yawn and seeing also if we could make animals yawn by yawning at them and unfortunately the answer is no um, someone did claim they caught a yawn from a lion but i don't know if that really counts
2: <laughs> i i feel a little bit like yawning when uh, my pets i have a pet dog and when that yawned i, I would feel hmm. the it's inclination. possible i mean
4: it's a very it's a very c- peculiar thing because it's not about an open mouth because if you cover up a yawn y- it's still contagious um and you know and it seems to be people who are more self-aware and empathetic people seem to Take yawns more, so it's it's something to do with imagining how the other people, that other person you're looking at, is feeling and kind of being empathetic about it. We begin yawning in the womb. I mean, yawning is an amazing. We don't know, you don't know enough about what it is and why it happens, but it's a very good question, and we'll keep working on it until we find out. There's a researcher
2: in uh, New York called Gordon. Gallop who did some work on yawns and he showed students videos with people yawning and then looked at who yawned in sympathy and then did two things. He asked the students instead of breathing through their nose to breathe through them with their mouth open or hold a cold compress onto their forehead and both of these strategies, when you hold a cold compress onto your forehead or breathe through the mouth you can affect the yawning. So if you breathe through your mouth you yawn more, if you hold the cold compress on your head you yawn less and his theory is that yawning cools the brain in some way and it's to do with alertness and if you have an infectious yawning behaviour, if you we've got a bunch of people who are all sort of sitting around a campfire at night and there's a danger that some things some predator might come along. If one person starts yawning, then it means that everyone's getting a little bit on the tired side and by cooling the brain and increasing alertness, then because when you have sleep deprivation, brain temperature rises, we know that. Uh, this means that if everyone catches the yawn, everyone gets made more alert at once, which keeps everyone looking for any danger, which is his theory. So there you go. got a quick question from um, Guillermo Davies, who says, what is the composition of fire? Well, fire looks like a solid thing, but it's not. It's actually just vapour. So when you heat something up to a high temperature, it shoves out chemicals which are volatile and flammable. They mix with oxygen, which is coming in from the air around them, and they combust. So they react with the oxygen, and they burn, releasing heat. And they also produce some degradation products, or burning products of the combustion, which... When you make that very, very hot, it glows, it's incandescent, and it gives out light of a different wavelength. And different chemicals make different coloured lights, and that's why flames have different colours. But sodium is very, very common, and so that makes flames look an orange colour. And also if you have incomplete combustion, if you have some sooty particles in the smoke or the the vapour, then they'll glow orange as well, which is why you then see this orange pan.
3: We've got a question for you here, Chris. Now when I was a kid, I had all these stars on my ceiling that glowed in the dark, and we've had a oh, question in here from James Hibbert. Why do glow in the dark dark objects glow in the dark
2: this is really clever but it goes back about a hundred years actually and um, people discovered a paint in 1905 called zinc uh, sulfide and they found that when you shone light on this or mixed it with something radioactive they were using radium at the time because nice it's a source of energy it could behave as what's called a phosphor so chemicals like that what happens in them is that when you put some energy in in the form of light the light kicks some of the electrons in the chemical up to higher energy levels than they would have normally and immediately it you would expect them to fall back down again but they don't in some cases these electrons stay at this slightly higher energy state for a variable amount of time and then they fall back to their normal energy level and when they do so they give out the energy they soaked up but they give it out in the visible spectrum and in most cases it's a sort of greeny colour but you can make other lights as well green is the colour the eye is most sensitive to in the dark so that's the colour combination that's most often used because you don't have to have such a good effect for it to be visible so they tend to use green but it's possible to make even better chemical these days there's one called strontium illuminate which uh, is very very good at soaking up lots of energy and then very slowly oozing it back out again and in fact i think it was yamaha made a motorbike where the fairing had this around the outside edges so it would soak up light during the day and then have you would have a sort of glow-in-the-dark motorbike at night cool. and the idea being that this would make it more visible because you're making a much bigger sort of angle on someone's eye when they're looking at you in the dark so you're much more likely to see the motorbike in the dark which is really good
3: that would just look really spectacularly cool
2: Thank you, Kat. It is The Naked Scientists, and it's Chris, Helen, and Kat, and we're talking about your science questions. So if you'd like to ask us anything, but lots and lots of email questions to get through, but if you would like to send in some questions, the email address to contact us is Chris at thenaked scientist.com.
1: The Naked Scientists. Brought to you by thenaked
2: scientists.com. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith with Kat Arney and with Helen Scales and we're talking science Q&A. We're solving your scientific conundrums this
3: week. Kat? We've got a question for Helen here uh, from Narendra in India. He says, how do plants make tannins when attacked by caterpillars? What's all this about?
4: Well, I guess first of all, you want to know what tannins are and why do plants have them. It's something called a secondary metabolite, which basically means it's something that plants make, which isn't absolutely essential for life. It's not part of growing or... or, um, You know, repairing itself or basically existing. It's something that's going to add a little extra to the way they live their lives. And and these are. basically things that taste bad and that interfere with things that try to eat plants they do things like um, they bind to proteins that are eaten so once they get inside of the caterpillar or the, um, the the cow or whatever it is eating the grass it um it stops it from being digested so it's you no know, it puts off animals from wanting to eat different types of plants we eat tannins we actually quite like tannins we like tea that's full of tannin wine and things like that so actually um, some animals quite like the taste of tannins and some adapt ways to be able to deal with them but essentially this is a kind of plant defence mechanism um, to try and stop them from being munched and some plants will produce tannins um, naturally anyway um, once they've got themselves growing and, and they're up doing quite well they'll put t- tannins in parts of their um, leaves and stems just to generally um, keep herbivores away but some plants actually do rather clever thing which is because these are quite complex chemicals they're called polyphenols so they take a bit of energy to make so it might be better to only make them when you are being attacked by something and so in fact there are mechanisms by which um, a mechanical um, effect whether that's actually something eating you or even just um, being damaged by wind Will actually trigger a pathway that synthesizes tannins, um, and people have done exp- uh, have shown that even just by breaking off bits of leaf, um, it triggers um, genes that um, code for an enzyme that's part of a pathway that generally basically creates this tannin. Um, and the really clever thing is, um, which I think is just yeah, the plants are absolutely wonderful. We don't think enough about how amazing they are. And there are some plants that, if one plant over here, say, is eaten by a caterpillar and and it starts producing tannins, actually produce another substance, a type of pheromone a volatile hormone um that tells other plants nearby to also start producing tannins which is just bonkers really (laughs) it's plants communicating to each other and protecting themselves um from creatures that are trying to eat them. I think Bonkers or conkers?
2: Sorry, couldn't resist that. <laughs> uh, talking of plants, Les from Over says, why do vegetables like swedes cook k- k- quicker when they're chopped up? This is all down to surface area, Les. If you chop up your swede into small chunks, then it means that there's far more contact between the vegetable and the hot water. If you have one very big swede, you have a very big volume locked up inside your swede, but not much surface area, the outside of the swede, for the heat and the water to get into the vegetable matter. Whereas, if you chop it into small bits, the surface area is now very high Relative to the volume, so it can get heat in much quicker. The downside is that it will also get cold much quicker once you put it on your plate, so eat up quickly. Here's a question for you from David Anderson who says If human body temperature is 37 degrees, why do we feel hot when it's 37 degrees outside?
3: Uh, there's two kind of reasons for this. 37 degrees is our internal core body temperature, and the temperature that's on our skin is probably a bit lower. And, uh, and particularly, I don't know if this is just specific to ladies, but often your feet are a bit colder than the rest of your body, and my boyfriend always whinges about it. So 37 degrees is your core body temperature, so temperatures that are lower than that will still feel hot to us on the outside. The other reason is, is that... It gets harder and harder and harder to cool down your body the hotter it gets, the nearer it gets to 37 degrees. So basically we've evolved systems in our bodies that, that kind of kick in to cool us down before we get as hot as as 37 degrees. And it's really to protect us because once you start to approach a temperature of 37 degrees it does get very, very difficult to keep yourself cool because sweat doesn't evaporate very easily. Uh, you can't cool yourself down.
2: Some people say that the dinosaurs uh, struggled with this because they had something called gigantothermia going back to Les Inova's Swede once you have a very very big body you don't have a very big surface area relative to the volume inside you Mm -hmm. and your metabolic rate is producing all of these Uh, chemical reactions that are very exothermic they give out a lot of energy and getting rid of all that excess heat can be really quite tricky so some of these dinosaurs struggled to keep themselves cool enough so although they were effectively cold-blooded because they were reptiles they were were effectively warm-blooded because right in the core of the dinosaur they were so hot from not being able to get all their heat out that they were effectively as warm-blooded as you and
3: I Yeah, and getting too hot is really very damaging for your body's reactions once you get over a certain temperature you, you just can't really function properly I've got an email here from Narinda in India and he, um, who asks, why
4: is a king cobra not affected by its own venom? Which is a really good question.
2: It is because lots of people say uh, the snakes are in some way immune but the reason is the same reason that you don't die from your own gastric or stomach juices which if they get into the wrong part of your body will kill you very effectively. When people have pancreatitis which is where the Uh, pancreas, which is connected to your gut and secretes all the enzymes that break down your lunch, Where where that gets inflamed and the degradative juices get into your bloodstream, this can actually cause quite severe damage to your body and it can cause lung damage and it can cause other forms of inflammation. So that's very bad. So the snake uses exactly the same strategy that you do, which is that it makes the venom, which is a kind of protein, it's a tiny protein, which it can make lots of, and it has it in a sack which it stores up in its head, and it's connected to the two fangs at the front which are hollow and then when the snake bites you this sac squirts the venom out down the teeth and into your skin but If you look at the the venom gland, it's actually lined by very specialised cells that keep the venom there and not in the snake's body. So there should be no access between the venom and the snake's body. And when I spoke to someone who is a venom expert, they said you can also detect antibody to their own venom in some snakes. So just in case some spilled over, I think they have this sort of backup plan, which is they have some anti-venom already built in to mop it up and make sure it doesn't go any further.
3: So could one cobra kill another cobra by biting it really badly then? (laughs) Probably, I think so, Yeah, uh, if they're immune but not that immune, that's a possibility.
2: A so. uh, quick one for you, Helen. This is Scoo. This person's from Scoo, calls himself Scoo on our forum. He says, what's happening when your stomach rumbles?
4: Excellent. Well, I think what my favourite thing about rumbling stomachs is the official word for it. Does anyone know the official word for rumbling stomachs? Oh, you know, the yes, scientific yes. word.
2: Borborygmy.
4: Borborygmy. And that's right. Borborygmy. And do you know where it comes from? Do you know what it means? From your stomach? It's, it's one of those thing, words you think, oh, it must have some clever meaning, but, but apparently the Greeks came up, with the ancient Greeks, and it's actually just onomatopoeic. It's supposed to sound like the sound of your stomach rumbling, which is rather wonderful. So there you go. Next time, Scrabble or, you know, pub quiz, Borborygmus. <laughs> in spell th- it. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll put it That's on the more forum. more seven
2: letters, isn't it? is not it?
4: Uh, oh yes, it is actually. Yes. Yeah, you You'd wouldn't have get to that. link it to another no. word, wouldn't Pub you? Pub quiz, then. Anyway, but basically, it's all about um, it's all about your intestines being a sort of a long tube between your mouth and your bottom, if you like, in a very simplistic way. And that you have these, you have um, waves of contraction that are trying to push food down. Sort of, it's called peristalsis that pushes food through the system into your stomach, through your intestines, and um, it does this all the time. And when it's full of food, I think then there's there's really no noise, or it gets sort of absorbed by the food. But when your stomach's empty, or if there's a gas bubble trying to make its way through your system it tends to resound a bit and make those kind of funny noises and um, uh, and that's what's that's basically what's going on it's happening all the time but usually you don't hear it and there you go but I think borborygmus is a wonderful word
2: there you go definitely word of the week thank you Helen don't forget we're doing a kitchen science experiment Ben and Dave have been out in a car park they've got a helium balloon which is bobbing around in free air inside Dave's car and they pulled away and then they put the brakes on and stopped. And they're asking you what happens to the movement of the balloon as the car is moving. John in Colchester got in touch, and he said he thinks the balloon won't move around inside the car. What do you think? Or if you have any questions for us here on The Naked Scientist, it's chris at thenakedscientist.com.
1: Sorting out the sparks from the quarks. The Naked Scientists. For more information, get online at nakedscientist.com.
3: You are listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith, Kat Arney and Helen Scales. Now it's time for the wonderful woman who's certainly no dinosaur. This is Diana O'Carroll with our question of the week. Hello. This week I'm going to be mostly drinking dinosaur
7: water.
5: My name is Skye. I'm an archaeologist in Arkansas in America. And I was taught when I was young that we drink the same water today that the dinosaurs drank when they were alive. And
7: I wondered if that was true. So are there any molecules of H2O still hanging around after 65 million years?
5: I'm Professor Ken Carslaw from the University of Leeds and I work on uh, global atmospheric models and climate models. The answer to this question requires an understanding of chemical cycling of water around the atmosphere. We tend to think of water being recycled endlessly in the hydrological cycle and certainly from a climate and weather point of view, most water doesn't spend more than a few days or weeks in the atmosphere before it's rained out. It then evaporates again, it forms new clouds, it rains or snows, and the rivers return that water to the ocean. The longest timescale of water anywhere in the hydrological cycle is in the deep ocean, and it stays there for several thousand years before returning to the surface. All these timescales are much shorter than the 65 million years since dinosaurs. However, water is very slowly destroyed chemically in photosynthesis, which is the process by which plants convert carbon dioxide and water to sugars and oxygen. Water is recovered again, but a different molecule in respiration, which is basically the reverse of photosynthesis to make energy and carbon dioxide. So to calculate how much water remains from the dinosaur age, we need to consider the total amount of water on the planet and the rate at which water is taken up in photosynthesis. The Earth's plants take up about 12 billion tons of water per year. We know that roughly from the carbon dioxide that they take up. The total water on the Earth is about 1.4 billion billion tons, Dividing these two numbers, we can estimate that most of the water will have been chemically altered within about 100 million years. So dinosaurs lived 65 million years ago. So some of the water we drink is the same water. More than half of the water is likely to be different.
7: Plants are the main culprits for chemically destroying most of the dinosaur drinking water over the past millions of years On our forum, Dr Beaver agreed with our expert that dino water is still about and said that some of it was probably at the bottom of the Pacific Ocean R.D. mentioned the constant stream of water production from respiration
3: Also on the forum, a new member called Will offered a near perfect answer saying that water is consumed in biological systems and incorporated into the living tissue and then excreted in some form back into nature The odds of the exact hydrogen atoms recombining with the exact same oxygen atoms is extremely remote
7: pretty good well now we've mentally warmed up a bit you need to keep it ticking over for the next month when i will be back with a whole pile of new questions like this
2: hello my name sean and i'm from edinburgh i would like to know how much information can my brain take before i start overwriting stuff that's already there is all this learning good for me or should i concentrate on less? i have asked this question and nobody can give me an answer
7: If you've tried a month of learning versus a month of unlearning, then please let us know the results. Send your answers and new questions to chris at thenakedscientist.com or why not put them on our forum that's just made for answers at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Well, now last week's question of the week, we asked if any animals can really live forever and found out about how giant tortoises can live for hundreds of years. Certain trees survive for thousands of years and some bacteria can enter suspended animation and reanimate up to millions of years later. We've since had an email from Francis Fabian about a really interesting plant called King's Lamatia It's a shrub found in Tasmania which only ever reproduces asexually. Each individual plant has identical DNA to all the others. Even though one plant lives for just 300 years, this is one of the oldest plant clones on Earth. So old that the fossils we find are identical to the live plants. In fact, it's been around and cloning itself for at least 43,600 years.
2: 43,600
7: years even. That's a big number. And uh, could be up to 135,000 years old. Sadly though, the remaining populations are very vulnerable in parts of Tasmania. Prone to fires, but scientists are doing their best to keep this fascinating plant safe
2: it's amazing isn't it to think that it's still around thank you diana that's diana o'carroll and as diana says she'll be back in a month because over august we're going to be taking a bit of a break and we'll be bringing you programs that we've put together from all over the world using interviews with people who we've been to meet so there will be a naked scientist but it will be a little bit different until we relaunch in september so you will have to wait to find out how much you can cram into your brain well the answer to that then thank you diana Laying the facts bare, Ooh. the naked scientists. It is The Naked Scientist with Chris, Cat and Helen, and we are taking your questions. If you have any questions for us, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com.
4: Now let's get back to Dave and Ben who are driving around in a car park in Cambridge, hopefully not causing any havoc, and um, but no doubt attracting some strange looks because they've got a helium balloon, but it's all in the name of kitchen science.
2: And just to remind you, they are asking you to put this helium balloon in the car and then pull away and then put the brakes on, fairly sharpish, and have a look what the balloon did. And we heard from Carrie Lunt in Second Life, who says, think of the air in the car as if it were water, and the balloon was floating in it. What would happen to the water? Well, it would flow forward on braking, making the balloon go backwards. Let's find out if he's right.
8: Hello, and welcome back to Kitchen Science. We're still in Dave's car in a park and ride, nobody's asked us to move yet, and we are starting to steam up a little bit, so we should probably get on with the experiment. So, obviously, because we're in a car and we're moving, the first thing I'm going to do is strap myself in. We have a helium balloon here, and what we plan to do is hold it on the string in the middle of the car, and then accelerate the car a bit, and then slow it down again. It's important to remember, if you are trying this out, make sure you keep the balloon tied down so it can't float in front of the driver and distract him. So then,
9: Dave, let's get started. Let's start the car up. Okay, we'll accelerate away gently. And now stop.
8: Now that was very strange because obviously when we started moving I'm sure most people are familiar with the feeling I felt like I was being pushed down into my seat so I was being pushed backwards and then when you hit the brakes I felt like I was being pushed forward I was kind of straining against the safety belt but watching the helium balloon it looked like it did exactly the opposite it seemed to move forward when you first started moving and then backwards when you stopped. But maybe it actually didn't do that, it just appeared that it did that because I was moving forward and back with the car. So let's accelerate again, Dave. OK. Now it, it's definitely moving forward when I'm being pushed back and hit the brakes. And it, uh, this is unbelievable, I don't understand this. I am definitely being pushed forward when you hit the brakes, but the helium balloon moves quite quickly towards the back of the car what's going on why does it seem that
9: exactly the opposite happens to me the strange thing about the helium balloon is it's actually lighter than the air around it we can use a quite nice model of what's going on it's just a bottle of water with a bubble in it well you seem to conveniently have
8: a bottle of water with a bit of air in the top there in your car how can we use this to show
9: what's happening with the helium balloon Okay, this is quite a similar situation to the helium balloon. We've got water, which is heavy, which is a bit like the air in the car, and then a bubble, which is much lighter than the water, which is a bit like the helium. When we accelerate the car, we're pushing everything forwards, but the things with the most inertia, which are the most dense, will tend to get left behind the most, and so we'll end up at the back of the car.
8: When you say the things with the most inertia, you mean the things that take more effort to get
9: moving? Yes, exactly. So the water's going to take much more effort to get moving, so the water should slosh to the back of the bottle... Pushing the air to the front. Okay, well, let's uh, see what happens.
8: Yes, you're right, actually. As we are accelerating, the air bubble in this bottle of water is moving right to the front of the bottle.
9: And then when we stop, everything's going to try and carry on moving. The water's got the most inertia, so it's going to carry on moving the most, and so it's going to slosh to the front, leaving the bubble behind.
8: And yes, when we break, all the air goes to the back. Now, this is despite me feeling like I'm being pushed forward. I can see the air in the bottle clearly being pushed to the back.
9: Yeah, that's because everything else is being pushed forwards much harder than the bubble is. So the bubble gets left behind and gets pushed to the back.
8: And so I'm guessing that the helium balloon is acting like the bubble in the bottle of water.
9: Yeah, it's exactly the same. When you accelerate, everything gets pushed to the back of the car, but the air is denser than the balloon, so it gets pushed back harder. So it sloshes to the back of the car, so the balloon gets pushed forwards. And when you brake, the air sloshes to the front of the car, so the balloon gets pushed backwards.
8: That's really fantastic. I would never have thought that a helium balloon would do exactly the opposite to what I was feeling. But is there any way that we use this effect in
9: real life? You get a similar effect when you go round a corner. Normally, if the car turns left, you feel like you're being thrown to the right. You should find the helium balloon gets thrown to the left Should we give that a go? We certainly can
8: Okay, so I've put the water down Again, I have the helium balloon in front of me And we're going to drive and turn a sharp right And see what happens and yet I can feel me being pushed across to the left and I can see the helium balloon being pushed towards the right. This is really fantastic because it's definitely not what you expect. We're going in a circle now and clearly I'm leaning at a very different angle to the angle that the balloon's going at. <laughs> this is amazing, Dave. Do they use this anywhere else?
9: Well, this is the principle on how a centrifuge works. If you want to separate things which are different densities, you basically spin them round in a circle the denser things will get thrown to the outside and the less dense things will get thrown towards the middle. So this is how they separate things like blood.
8: When you go and give blood, they'll centrifuge it out so that they can keep the blood cells but get rid of the other
9: stuff. Yeah, that's right. The blood cells are denser than the plasma, so they get thrown right to the outside and so you can collect the blood cells from the outside and the plasma from the inside.
8: Well, that's fantastic. Well, once again, if you are going to try this out at home, do be careful. But next time you are on your way to a party and you have a helium balloon, just watch how it might not behave in the way that you expect.
2: Thank you very much to Ben and Dave. What a terrific experiment. You can find out all about how it works from our website because Dave's written it all up. It's at nakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science and there's about a 100 more experiments like that, simple things that you can do at home that teach you important bits of science. We've heard from James in Beedley who says the phrase as useless as a chocolate teapot. How thick would the chocolate teapot need to be to brew tea for four people? Ben wants to do that for a kitchen science next time. So thank you for that idea, James. We'll see what we can do.
4: We've got a question here from David Cherry. He wants to know, how do dogs detect human seizures before they occur?
3: This is a really interesting one because there's um, kind of anecdotal evidence that dogs can detect when someone's going to have an epileptic fit, but there's also a lot of evidence that actually they don't. And in fact, in some cases where people have are having seizures that aren't genuine epilepsy but are kind of brought on by um, psychological states, there's some worry that dogs... <laughs> behaving in a certain way might actually cause them to have a seizure when they wouldn't normally. Uh, There are some dogs that are being trained to look after people with epilepsy once they've had a fit, for example, by bringing them a blanket or getting help, you know, uh, making an alert, that kind of thing. Um, If there is any truth in how dogs may detect um, fits before they happen, maybe they're picking up something uh, in the changes in their owner's behaviour there's really very little really solid evidence about it Um, but it may be more just the partnership if you have a dog for a long time they get to know what what you like and what you do Uh, Anyway, Helen, here's a quick one for you. Why do insect bites itch even after the insect has gone away? That's from Tracy. It's
4: a very good question for me because I get bitten like anything when I go and do my research in the tropics. Um, It's all about what the the insect leaves behind inside you. They actually pump saliva into you, um, full of anticoagulating compounds because they don't want your blood to clot while they're there trying to suck your blood up. So they pump you full of anticoagulants, um, which you know things like leeches do the same thing, um, which is why you bleed a lot if you've had a leech bite. And, And your body can have an autoimmune response to that which is why it can swell but you can get used to it so if you have a few over a few days some people kind of a bit like him having shots against allergies you can kind of get used to it but I don't and I scratch like anything and it's horrible
2: it's because your immune system learns to get better at reacting to it I think thank you for that Helen Uh, very quick last question Um, we got one from Edwin in Waxham who says what makes planes leave vapour trails Uh, the reason that planes leave vapour trails is because they're burning hydrocarbons chains of carbon atoms linked together with hydrogen around it and when this mixes with oxygen then you make water and some carbon dioxide, and so the vapour trail is the water, and because the plane's really high up in the air, actually what you're getting is ice so vapour trails are water vapour that often form ice crystals, and they leave those nice little miniature clouds behind in the wake of the plane thank you for that. Right, that's it for this week we've had a wonderful question and answer show, we're back next week punting down the cam to give you an insight into some of Cambridge's best scientists, thank you for joining us if you have any questions in the meantime, chris at thenakedscientist.com, have a great weekend
1: the Naked Scientists are sponsored by The Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC, and UKFAST. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.
0: Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK.